Take it. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Uh, this Wednesday is uh, Ash Wednesday, as Beth helped us uh, remember. Um, so here at Sanctuary, we have a fairly diverse community um, when it comes to faith backgrounds. So I imagine that there is a fairly large variety of experiences and perspectives on Lent. Uh, from some of us having grown up with lots and lots of Lent practices. Some of us may not even know or have a lot of familiarity with the word Lent itself. Like, where does it come from? What is this? Why does anyone do anything for Lent? Um, But if this were medieval times, friends, we might be feeling some of the same dread of Lent, like the poor folks in Game of Thrones, how they felt about winter. Lent is coming. Okay, and here's why. Because we would begin begin to face about seven weeks of very strict rules around fasting, prayer, and giving money to the church and to the needy. Now, fasting rules change from time to time, season to season, community to community. Um, But it ranged from, like, not eating at all during the day for the whole time during Lent, much like Ramadan uh, for the Muslim faith, not eating on just certain days, like Wednesdays or Fridays, not eating meat, except fish, because they survived the flood. (laughs) And then, um, you know, there were rules about abstaining from sex on different days or for the whole period of Lent. These were the rules for the Christians, okay, for those who had been baptized, whom God supposedly already liked. If you were not baptized and you wanted to be baptized or you were a religious minority and being forced to be baptized, otherwise your home will be burned and will take your stuff because God loves you, You were subject to even more strict rules about fasting, giving money, and prayer, and you had to subject yourself to biblical and theological, uh, I almost said destruction, (laughs) (laughs) biblical and theological instruction leading up preparing you for Easter so you too could enjoy your peeps. Now, the goal of all the rules and traditions in medieval times and up to now through all church traditions, is a good one. It's to facilitate restoration between human beings and God. But the dynamics around this goal could get pretty funky and weird. And it becomes clear when you read some of the church history, some of the sermons and texts and teachings around Lent. And there's two not-so-healthy dynamics that are at play in all of this. So the first not-so-healthy dynamic, shame. The Lent tradition tries to provide a helpful structure in which people can deal with shame. But when you look at the writings and the teachings, more often than not, shame becomes rather institutionalized and reinforced. There's something intrinsically shameful about being a human being. We are sinners, God is holy, and we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. And number two, sacrifice. 
The traditional Lenten disciplines call for sacrificing something to God. We sacrifice our time, our bodies, pleasure, money. And there is a sense that when we bring these sacrifices to God, then and only then does restoration happen. Our sacrifices help God like us again. And the costlier the sacrifice, the better. Now, I, want to tr- I would like to propose an alternate approach this morning to Lent and to spiritual practices during Lent. And I want to provide a model right away from someone else in our church community who has um, happily volunteered to share because I asked her to. So please join me in welcoming Sanctuary member Katie Iverson to share about her Lent practice. Give it up. Good morning. So I am slightly notorious for my, not for my Lenten fasting, but for the breaking of that fast, which I do in high style on Easter morning, right after the worship leader will say, um, he is risen, he is risen indeed. If you look over, you'll see me um, guzzling a cold Diet Coke that I fasted from, stuffing my face with powdered sugar donut holes, (laughs) eating a big piece of cheese that I stuck in my purse on the way to church. Um, But David asked me to share a little bit about my experience with Lenten fasting. And so I fasted from all sorts of things over the years. I grew up um, in the Catholic Church where fasting was kind of a a big part of what we did at Lent. Um, And it's usually something I would give up and then quickly find something else to replace it with. So over the years, things have not been that hard or painful of a fast. And then many years, it just feels like a task or something I have to do, and it hasn't really felt very spiritual. But... I did have a very meaningful fast, spiritually and physically, which was the first year that I chose to fast from sugar. So we, I still ate natural sugar, like I ate fruit, but I didn't eat anything else with sugar in it. And then you realize that like everything has sugar in it. So getting ready for Ash Wednesday, Bill and I spent a night at Hy-Vee reading labels, stocking up on like all the things that we could eat. Well, all the things were like Triscuits and one kind of tortilla chip and Kraft macaroni and cheese. That was about it. So I spent that Fat Tuesday, like I always do, as my full-time job of eating all the things I won't eat. So I ate powdered sugar donut holes all day long. And so I had so much sugar that day, it wasn't until four or five days after that my body started to really crave something sweet. So I was sitting on the couch eating Triscuits, actually shoveling them in because I felt this need to eat something sweet. Um, And I wanted something to fit, hit this like mark of sweetness in my tongue and I wanted to kind of get at this feeling so I just kept eating the Triscuits, eating the Triscuits, eating the Triscuits and then I realized that this was like an itch I couldn't scratch and at about halfway through the box of Triscuits I just told myself like just stop eating the Triscuits, it's not going to help, nothing is going to satisfy what you want <laughs> and uh, I just felt that feeling and sat in it so I just felt defeated and I felt overstuffed of Triscuits and I felt not satisfied, but then I felt this nudge from Jesus. I felt like he was saying to me, what are you shoveling into your life to satisfy a need that only I can meet? Don't you realize that you'll just feel defeated and overstuffed and never satisfied? And I just sat there like, ugh, it's so true. And I just moaned and then just sat feeling all that. I spent the rest of that let pondering and praying and then watching my habits, watching myself attempt to shovel things into my life like Netflix or busyness to help satisfy some deep craving or maybe cover up something that was hard. 
And I think Jesus was just asking me to be still and still and to sit in a place of craving or to name a hard emotion and just to feel it, to just to feel the need or the craving and be okay without satisfying it immediately and take it to Jesus and then to wait. So that's what I did physically and spiritually for those 46 days of Lent. 40 days is a lie, the church tells us. It's not true. It's 46 <laughs> days. I constantly hum the... It's true. It's 46 days. It's 46 days. It's a lie of my childhood that perpetuates. 46 days, not 40. I, I constantly spent that Lent humming satisfied from Hamilton because it made me feel better and stilled myself to be okay without any immediate gratification of that want and my needs. And it was hard, and it was no fun at all, but I felt Jesus with me. And what I've learned from that, I'm not perfect at all at stillness, and I'm not really good at hard things, but that Lenten fast gave me an awareness of the habit of shoveling that I have. So when one bowl of 9 p.m. Lucky Charms becomes a weeknight ritual, I'm able now to stop at like night four and ponder, what may I actually need from Jesus that I'm attempting to get from this magically delicious treat? Thank you, Katie. It's perfect. Uh, so we're going to pick up more on Katie's model in a little bit, but she's, you hear her. She's demonstrating an approach that I think avoids those two pretty big pitfalls of shame and sacrifice. She's not engaged in Lent in any way that reinforces shame, uh, and she's not doing it to bring a sacrifice to God. Rather, Katie's Lent practice is fundamentally about entering into the connection with God that's already there. She's coming to know herself through that Lent practice, and she's being transformed in the process. So this approach resonates, I think, with what we hear from Jesus in his teachings and what we see in the model that Jesus offers around spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines. And so that's what we're going to turn to now. We're going to read um, part of a teaching that Jesus offers us where he specifically mentions prayer, fasting, and giving alms or giving to the needy. And this is one of the classic texts uh, that's used during Lent in kind of Christian history. And so that's why we'll jump in. Um, and as I read this teaching from Jesus, see if you can hear what is the number one goal that Jesus has in mind for prayer, fasting, and giving money. What does Jesus have in mind? What's the goal of these disciplines and practices? So here we go. Picking up in Matthew 6, uh, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, And your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
Okay, we're going to skip a section where Jesus shares uh, the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father Prayer, and then he jumps back in. Whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Clean your face, kids. So that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret secret will reward you. Okay, so what did you hear? What's the number one goal? Reward. Reward. It's to get a reward. And Jesus mentions it seven times in nine verses. Seven times in nine verses, he's emphasizing this is about getting a reward from God. Now, this is kind of remarkable because um, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word reward, I think more like credit card points than I do spiritual practices <laughs> with Jesus. Like, you get points, you get cash, you get gift cards. Um, but here Jesus is talking about reward. And for all the emphasis that Jesus has on reward, he doesn't talk about what it is. So what do we get if we pray, if we fast, if we give money? Well, I can tell you this week, I've been pondering this reward thing, and I've been making a little wish list of things that I want from God, okay? So for example, I want Taco Bell to bring back the original recipe of nacho fries. I, they changed it. Like, why do you take this amazing thing and change it? It's like changing the scene when Han Solo shoots Greedo. Like, what are you doing? Don't change a perfect scene. Don't change perfect nacho fries. And I was arguing with my kids about this, actually. So my kids are convinced that the recipe has not changed. It has, in fact, changed. I went on Twitter and found the truth. <laughs> Outrageous, I know. I read a half dozen articles to make sure it was the truth on Twitter. So it was. It has, in fact, changed. Ugh. So here's the thing. If I pray, if I fast, if I give away a lot of money, maybe I can convince God to intervene, who will then somehow get the executives at Taco Bell to change the recipe back to the original flavor of nacho fries. Yes? No. Okay. I'm seeing some head shakes. Okay. Right. Okay. Obviously, I'm playing. I'm having some fun with this. My point is that the reward is ambiguous. Jesus doesn't define what it is. And what that means is there's a lot of room for interpretation. And people have run with that. People have done all kinds of things interpreting this section of Scripture. And what we see from how people interpret it is that it's rooted in fundamental conceptions of who is God, what is God like, how does God intervene in our world, how does God respond to prayer and fasting and giving money. Now, I want to offer a contrast of two approaches, and these approaches loosely aligned with what we heard from Katie and how I characterize kind of the medieval strict approach, um, which I know is a little bit unfair because you could nuance that in a thousand ways. And I will say too, I'm going to offer this contrast. We're gonna, I'm going to offer a chart and we're going to show a very clear contrast in approaches. 
and it's a little oversimplified, but I'm doing this for the sake of clarity on how to show the contrast so we can get a little clearer on what's going on. Okay, so I have two approaches. One is called the shame-based approach, and the other is called an acceptance-based approach. So here it is, we'll work through this. The first bit is the perspective on humanity. So you'll see that it's original sin versus the acceptance-based approach, which is an emphasis on original blessing. Now let me define this. So original sin is a doctrine that humans are innately sinful. There's something fundamentally broken in us. This doctrine may be onto something. It does appear that we humans can quite easily engage in all kinds of behavior that is harmful to ourselves and others. But this doctrine of original sin can often be accompanied by an overwrought sense of shame. There's something wrong with us, and we ought to be ashamed of ourselves because of it. And this overemphasis on sin can make shame an entrenched part of our life and faith. In contrast, the acceptance model, there's an emphasis on original blessing. Original blessing is the perspective that God has on human beings. And we think about God's perspective on humanity. It is blessing. It is unconditional love and embrace. That God's primary perspective on us isn't, you bad humans, it's, I love you, my children. I love you. And my intention towards you is blessing and blessing and blessing. Now, from those two uh, differences, almost everything else in the chart follows, and so we'll work through this. Um, Number two, from the shame-based approach, the human body is essentially shameful, right? we got to kind of be embarrassed of what's going on in here. Pleasure is suspicious. Sex is scary. Desires of the heart are probably sinful. And spiritual practices are a way to discipline the body because the body is bad and shameful, But from the acceptance-based approach, the human body is delightful. It's a gift. It's a gift from God to be celebrated. Not everything we do with our bodies is helpful, but it is a gift and a blessing. Number three, under the shame-based model, when something bad happens, it's helpful to assign blame to all parties responsible. Whose fault is it? Who's to blame? As a parent, I've discovered that the human capacity for blaming others is endless. (laughs) It is unbelievable. It's like, it's a reflex. It's like a gag reflex with just as much bile. It's like anything can happen and boom, blame someone, blame anything, blame the sky, blame the snow, blame the pencil, blame I don't, just make it up. Whatever it is, it's not me. And then we can victim blame. We can blame other people and scapegoat whole populations of people because something bad's going on and it's them, they, whoever they are. Under the acceptance-based model, when something bad happens, it's helpful to grieve and then take steps towards healing and restoration. So you can think about this as the energy, how we're expending energy, right? In the shame-based model, all the energy is trying to figure out what's going on and why, what caused this. And we, gotta, we need to adequately name who's responsible and, bl- and who's to blame. 
But the energy under the acceptance-based model is forward. It is, let's heal. Let's go forward and rest, restore and work towards healing and restoration. Number four, when we do something that harms ourselves or others, it confirms that we are bad in the shame-based approach. There is something wrong with us. See, we did something bad. In the acceptance-based model, we can accept responsibility and then work towards mending the harm done. Number five, the shame-based model. God likes us when we bring a sacrifice to God, and the costlier, the better. It shows God that we love God. God likes gifts, and if it costs us a lot, God likes us more. We bring a better gift. Under the acceptance-based model, God always likes us. We don't have to do anything. You, you can't, like, infinite love can't grow. <laughs> God already likes us, and there's nothing we can do to make that better. It just is infinite, always, total love. And there are, you know, there, it's funny, the sacrifice thing, there are places in the Bible where God looks at human beings, and they keep bringing sacrifices to God, and God says, enough, I don't need your sacrifices. Stop bringing sacrifices. Like, I don't need it. Because God is saying, I already accept you. So work on mercy, work on justice, work on love. That's where you can spend your energy. And finally, number six, with the spiritual practices in Lent. Under the shame-based approach, the purpose of spiritual disciplines in Lent is to make God happy and make up for some of the bad things we've done. In the acceptance-based model, it's about encountering God's love, learning more about ourselves. We can come to accept ourselves without judgment, without shame. We can come to embrace God's fundamental perspective on us, which is blessing. And we enter into a time of transformation, of healing, and of love. Now, you can hear then the comparison, right, between what Katie modeled for us in her sharing and, you know, my depiction of the medieval practices. But I think what Katie demonstrates and what this chart is trying to allude to is the reward that Jesus talks about. The reward is embracing God's acceptance of us. The reward is learning about ourselves the reward is confronting parts of ourselves that have not yet heard the good news that we are beloved and that we can fully embrace all of our parts and be transformed in the light of God's love. Now, I got to tell you, I've uh, personally tried all kinds of Lent practices over the years, um, and I can see both of these approaches, the shame and the acceptance approach, kind of always at work in me. Um, and so I, I kind of discover those at various times. I've tried giving up things like chocolate, social media, beer, coffee, sugar, which was the hardest for me also. Um, I've fasted from food. I've done prayer practice. I've given away money. Every single time I've tried something during Lent, I'm surprised. I'm surprised by the things I learn about myself, about God, I sometimes discover ways I'm still operating from that shame-based approach, thinking that I have to do some stuff to earn God's good favor. And I discover that about myself. 
I've told this story before in teachings, but I want to tell it again because it's very, very appropriate for today. Um, but there was a time in my life where I was working really, really hard to be like an A-plus Christian. And, and what I mean is like I was doing all kinds of spiritual practices. I was reading the Bible. I was praying. I was giving my 10% tithe, you know, giving that away. And I was still having kind of a miserable time in life. Life was hard for all kinds of reasons. And so there was one day I was walking, and I was just talking to God about this quietly in my head, not out loud. Um, I was near downtown. Anyway, so I'm walking, and, uh, and I'm telling God, like, God, I'm doing all this stuff for you, you know? And, you know, I feel like you're not holding up your end of the bargain. Like, I'm supposed to do all this good stuff, like prayer and fasting and read my Bible and do all this stuff, and you're supposed to, I don't know, make my life easier <laughs> or better or something. So I'm listing all the things. I'm like, I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm reading the Bible. And God says to me, should I thank you? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And I, start, I started laughing. I started cracking up. Because um, I, I heard it. I could hear God saying to me, should I thank you? Do you, like, why are you doing this? Do you think I need this? You're not, don't stop doing this for me, God's saying. Like, this is for you. Figure it out. Like, if you're not happy, change something. <laughs> like, I know life's hard. I'm sorry. I'm with you in it, God's saying. But you don't have to work hard to earn my love or my good favor. I am with you, and it's all blessing. So the point is, you've got to figure this out. Like, stop working so hard. So I could hope you, this, is, this was a big revelation for me. And I wish I could tell you, like, I've been transformed since. No, <laughs> it's still there. Like, me working so hard and then resenting God or life when it doesn't work out the way I want it to, you know. And I struggle with that. And I talk to God, and then we have another interaction where God says, should I thank you? <laughs> but the reward of Lent, the reward of these spiritual practices is about that moment of transformation now, I want to return to one last point in the scripture before we kind of uh, wrap up. Because there's one more tricky aspect of all this that Jesus mentions. Uh, it is this. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. So again and again, as Jesus talks about the reward in these practices, he uh, invites us to do it in secret. And, you know, he's, he's saying like, don't, don't tell anyone. Don't tell your friends. Don't tell your mom. Don't post it on Facebook. Like, don't sound the trumpet, he says. Um, or you'll miss your reward. And he goes so far as to say, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Which is, that is a really remarkable thing for Jesus, of all people, to say, because Jesus is often emphasizing union or unity. You know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. But here he's saying, you know, compartmentalize that stuff on a wizard level so your left hand does not know what your right hand is doing. Like, that is pretty amazing work. What is going on here? Why the secrecy? Why the hiding? Well, here's why. I think Jesus understands that the flip side of shame is pride. And not the good kind of pride that we might feel about our kids or our school or Iowa before the caucuses. 
but the kind of, you know, self-promotional, self-aggrandizing pride that whenever I compare myself to others, I come off looking pretty good. It's the flip side of the same coin. We compare ourselves to others, and we either look more or less favorably. And we look to the right, we look to the left, comparing ourselves endlessly. We can do this on superficial ways, and we can do it at a fundamental level. Am I okay? Do I fit in? Am I worthy? Do I measure up? And Jesus says, stop that. When you do spiritual practices, you do it with God alone. You come into a space where you're no longer looking to the left and right. You are looking at God face to face. And in that kind of space, there is only one thing to confront, yourself. Do you know that you are beloved? Do you know what it means to be free? to be whole, to be healed? Do you want access to all of God's good blessing and gifts? Or will you continue to compare yourself to everyone and anyone else to see if you're okay? This, I think, is what Jesus is talking about when he emphasizes doing it in secret. Now, here's the tricky part. Spiritual practices are almost always better done with other people. <laughs> like literally always, almost always. Like in even the prayer, the prayer that I did not read, have us read, but that Jesus inserts here, the Our Father prayer, the Lord's Prayer, it's in plural. So in this section, Jesus emphasizing, do it in secret. He then offers a prayer that's a plural prayer where we all stand together. We say, Our Father, you know, give us our daily bread. So he's modeling and demonstrating prayer practices that are plural. We do together while also emphasizing being alone. So which is it? The answer is both. (laughs) So here it is. We've got to figure it out. There are times where it will be very helpful for us to do it alone and not tell anyone. There are other times it's going to be very beneficial for us to do it with other people, to talk about it, to get some feedback and input, and to celebrate things together. The invitation is just to try it out. we got to try things out, see what works, see what doesn't, and adapt from there. We learn, we grow, we become more and more transformed as we do it. That is the invitation this Lent. So I want to wrap up by just looking at the options for us for Lent. You have an insert in your bulletin this week with a number of options that you kind of see the classic three pillars for individual practice. And then you can see ways that our church is also entering into it communally or together. But you can see the couple services coming up during Lent. The first one's this Wednesday. Um, Ash Wednesday, really profound, lovely service. We also have a grief service. You can see details in your bulletin about that. And then prayer, fasting, and giving. I don't know what you do with prayer, but do you want to try something new this Lent? Fasting, is there something you'd like to give up for 46 days? (laughs) And then whatever you fast from, reflect on what is that relation, what does it mean? What does that thing mean in your life? What's your relationship with that thing and what does it mean to give it up? And then giving money 
Maybe at uh, you know, your next family meal, you can sit down with family or friends uh, and figure out where could you give a gift together. Maybe you want to give a gift, a financial gift, to one nonprofit each week of Lent. Or you could all sit down at family dinner one night a week and write thank you cards or words of affirmation and send those cards to someone. You know, there's lots of ways to give. We also have our annual offering on April 5th. So our offering is our hands-on faith offering. All the money we raise leaves this church and blesses others. So it's a major, major communal act of giving. So please consider giving to that financially, and we'll, ha- we'll talk more about that in weeks to come. Okay, I want to take, we have one minute, so I want to take one minute in silent reflection just to say for each of us to take a moment before God, and you can take a pen or take out your smartphone and write some ideas down. How will you engage in any spiritual practices during Lent? Let me pray to open us. Well, God, thank you for uh, the model of spiritual practices you bring to us. Would you help us now hear from you if there's anything that might be helpful for us to engage in Lent? What do you have for us? Amen. At this time, we'll transition to communion uh, so the worship band can come forward. If you wish to be fed by Jesus, you're welcome to participate in communion with us. There are stations in the front and the back. There are prayer cards available. Um, If you have a prayer need, there are prayer ministers available in the foyer uh, every Sunday. So you can step out and receive prayer for a bit, come right back in and rejoin the service. Um, So please come to communion as you're ready. Amen.